Hey everyone, welcome to the Sneaker History Podcast, where we dive into the people, stories, and iconic moments that have helped make sneakers a global phenomenon. If you've ever told someone that you like their kicks, then you're in the right place. Before we lace up this episode, here's a little teaser for you. Stick around to the end of each episode for the last shot question. It's a chance to test your sneaker knowledge and engage with our community. I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com slash newsletter for a weekly deep dive into the biggest topics in the sneaker business. All right, now that the business is taken care of, grab your favorite pair of kicks and let's get started with the episode. Jordan trying to shake off Starks. Oh, what a move! Against Gill, the crowd on its feet. Allen for the win! Yeah! The Sneaker History Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Sneaker History Podcast. We're doing something a little bit different today, but I think you guys will like it. I've got noted author Pete Croato here with me, and Pete wrote this awesome book, From Hang Time to Prime Time. And this is a book that's really about the history of how the NBA became the NBA as it is today. And what I figured is we'll get to know Pete, the author, we'll get to know who his allegiances are for, we'll have him dive a little bit, not only into the book, but a piece on Grantland that kind of served as this prequel to this. And then we'll just let the conversation go where it may. Pete, how are you this morning? I'm doing well, Roa. Thanks for having me on. It's been, uh, yeah, happy to be here. Excellent. Now, I see you're wearing the Utah Jazz hat, but I was wondering, are you still in Ithaca, New York, and are you a Knicks fan? Yeah, you know, I it's actually a New Orleans jazz. Oh, hat. New Orleans. It's, it's, it, no, it's old school. Um, Mitchell Ness. Uh, let's see. Yeah, you know, I I've been in Central New York for uh, about five, a little over five years now, and um, actually no, close to six. Uh, but I grew up in I grew up in Central New Jersey. Uh, spent probably the first thirty five years of my life uh, in that er- in and around that area, um, and I grew up I grew up a Knicks fan, but uh, after. Uh, after the Knicks re- refused to sign uh, Jeremy Lin, uh, I, I parted ways uh, amicably uh, with the with the Dolan family, uh, and so now I mean I guess you could say uh, I'm a I'm a 76ers fan, but nice. really you know as I've as I've told a lot of people, I just love I, I you know I'm very much a, a an NBA. Um, you know, a polyglot. I, I kind of just, you know, if a game is on, I'm and the announcers are good, I'm in. So I'm very lucky. You know, in, in Ithaca, we get uh, MSG, uh, mm-hmm. which has you know uh, Mike Breen and, and Walt Frazier calling the games, and the Knicks are actually good for the first time in knock on wood. Yeah, for forever. And we also have the Yes Network. So and the, you know the and the and the Nets have been you know um, tearing it up of late and. Uh, I'm trying to think, you know, you have a really good broadcast team of, um, you know, led by Iron Eagle. I'm sorry, it was great. Um, so yeah, it's it's I'm in good shape here. Plus you have TNT and uh, you know uh, ABC. So yeah, I'm, I'm never I'm never far from being from being entertained. No, for sure. And I think we kind of live in that golden era now, where things like League Pass make all these games more readily available for us. Uh, yeah. Similar to you, I'm kind of uh, in the NBA version of Big Love, Big Love as well. When we first immigrated to the States, <laughs> we lived right across the street from uh, the Space Needle. So we were big oh, Supersonics nice. fans. And then because my parents were contractors in the IT industry, we actually moved to rural Missouri. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to adopt the league because there was so much college basketball around me. And it's not necessarily for me, but I think to your point, if there's a orange ball and there's good commentators, I will just sit down and watch. Yeah. So that was just kind of an eye-opening experience in the sense. But at the same time, I think to your point, it made me a stronger basketball fan. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Look, you know, I – that's the thing. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm 43 now, and I really think that fan – that being a fan, being a die-hard, like live and die with each game – that's a young, that's a young man's, uh, game. And it, it, you know, and I have a, I'm married, I have a daughter, you know, I, we have a mortgage being a fan and, 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 and grinding, grinding your teeth with each, with each game. It it becomes a lot harder to do when you have a total responsibility. So I don't know, there's enough pressure in this world. So I'm, so to me to sit down and watch just a great game or any, or even, 
increasingly any game is such a relief. It's it's such a it's such a bomb for me to just sit and watch, you know, Kyrie Irving one night and then Giannis another night or, right. or you know, or even just, you know, going and reading, a, you know, reading, you know, tweets or going back and reading, you know, great books. I mean, about about basketball, it is that is frequently something that I find to be very comforting. So, yeah, it, it's. I don't know, maybe at some point I'll, I'll get back to being a fan of a team. But, you know, but right now I'm, I'm just really happy just watching a player do great things and not hating that player because they're torching my team exactly. for, for 35 points or 40 points. Like, I don't know, I, as a Knicks fan, you know, I used to hate Michael Jordan. And, you know, I realize now, like, what a waste that was because I didn't get a chance to enjoy – Michael Jordan. I was so busy hating Michael Jordan that it was that I, I got I didn't get a chance to savor what I was watching. Um, and I, I don't want to make that mistake. I don't want to make that mistake again. No, I think that is very astute on your part, because I think <laughs> our generation, in a sense, is going through that with LeBron James, where you just have mm-hmm. to respect the totality of the work. Yep. And with the unfortunate passing of Kobe Bryant, in a sense, I think that awoke a lot of I wouldn't say feelings of love, but everybody slowly started to appreciate what Kobe gave us. And I think Mm -hmm. one thing that is kind of an underlying theme of your book, once again, from hang time to prime time, was the fact that what to me makes the NBA, the NBA and the fact that it's almost its own league is the theater aspect of it. I've had this conversation many times with people, and I'm sure you have as well. The one advantage the NBA always seems to have over Mm -hmm. its competitors, at least domestically, is the fact that it's the only major American sports league that there's no covering of the face of the players. So you're Mm -hmm. getting that theater component to it. Yeah. And I think as an audience member, to your point, there is something a little bit extra of watching, let's say an awesome Kyrie handle or a sick Mm -hmm. layup. And then he snarls afterward. And you can almost see that as an amplification of the point he wanted to make where he's just like, I'm that damn good. Mm -hmm. I'm fucking awesome. And here's just me letting you know how great I am. So that is just, fascinating to me and that's why i think i keep coming back to the sport as well yeah no i mean that's there there is no the drama is right there in front of you and you know it it is and the and the thing that that is also great about 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 the nba and and this started in the in the 1980s with cbs and then later with nbc and and going forward is just the people who the, the men and women who direct these games produce them run you know operate the cameras or are in the control room they treat these games like they're theater you know there are close-ups there are you know the, the the camera doesn't just stay in one spot it is it is a game where you you can grow you grow you grow very connected to these players you know i remember i mean a distinct memory i have growing up uh, as a knicks fan is whenever patrick Hume would take a would, would shoot a free throw he would be sopping in sweat and you could actually see the drips of sweat coming off his chin as he, as he prepared to shoot another free throw. And that sounds like maybe something that's disgusting, but to me that just shows the, the, that just shows you just how connected we are to these players, you know, and, and and, I said before about Kyrie and, and, you know, and, and James Harden, all these, and all these players that, you, I think one one reason why we're so connected to them is that they is that we get to we get to see them. We see them. We see their faces. We see their body language. They're not covered as you said. They're not covered in in pads or or you know or or like in baseball. They're not sitting down eighty percent of the time. So to me, the NBA is has, is the reason why it translates so well to television. Um, is because it well it translates so well to television for those reasons, but also translates so well to social media because we because we get to know these players and the players are also very proactive in in being on social media and that also but that goes in line to what the NBA is all about. It's always been a players league. It's always been about individuals. And to me, it's it, it's that makes the league more entertaining because I do think the players are able to speak for themselves and express themselves more so than in uh than in any other ma- than in any other major sp- american sport right and it's funny you mentioned that because i was going through the book again last night and there was a passage that kind of stuck out in my mind especially mm-hmm. around i guess the cbs way of doing things versus what nbc kind of did and mm-hmm. i think it was dick stockton that said 
if I'm watching TV and I see a commercial that says up next, we've got Allen Iverson versus Shaq. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> In a way, I think that lets you know everything. Yeah. Because of how well yeah. the NBA has done their job. And I know that it was almost set in a flippant tone, but I'm sure somewhere David Stern is smiling because he knows the answer to that. And more importantly, his audience knows the answer to that. We've got a mountain of a man against a man who has the heart the size of a mountain. And that's all you need to know. And exactly. that's perfect. That gets exactly. you in the game. That tells that tells you a storyline in three seconds. That yes. that and, and the other thing too is this. The that I, I you know and yeah you're right. Dick Stock did say that in a very flippant tone because he he was announcer at CBS and CBS was about the Boston Celtics versus the you know versus the Los Angeles Lakers and Larry and Magic were sort of secondary were were played off of that. But to me, I think what what NBC what the NBA and NBC did was yeah I mean it's not it's it's it may rankle you if you're a if you're a hardcore die in the wool basketball fan but it's brilliant because it because it, it, it as you said it tells you everything you need to know but also how often do we, when we go to when we when we used to go to the movies did we see a movie that was that came out from Warner Brothers or came out from i don't know um, a studio we can't. We we went to the movies to see a Tom Cruise movie or a Julia Roberts movie or especially the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties. We we we're all America has always been about stars. So why not gear that with with a with with a sports team? And the other thing is this: if you're a young fan who doesn't have any familiarity with a sport, I mean, and I'm I'm speaking from personal experience here. A player is how you get into a game. You know, right. I, I, you know, I was a Kevin McHale fan first, and a Patrick Ewing fan first, and 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 a, and, a, and, a, and a little bit of Michael Jordan fan first, and those players got me into the game. And once you have a player, I think that you that you gravitate toward, then the rest is easy. Then the game sells. Then the game sells itself. So, right. yeah, I, I really do think that that is that 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 was just a, a brilliant marketing scheme from the NBA because and that that was all Dick Stockton I'm sorry, pardon me Dick Eversall with NBC he grew right. up he, you know he was part of it he was came from NBC Entertainment and he was all about we have to build this around stars we have to build this around around personalities and David Stern was the same way and really that is that how that's how the league still is i mean if you look at you know we 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 know this game has more for, you know we, you know this, all the stars in the NBA, for the most part, we know them on first. We, we know them on a first name basis or by their nicknames. You know, Kyrie. If I say Kyrie and you're a basketball fan, you know it's Kyrie Irving. The same yep. way. The same way. If I say Giannis, like you know who I'm talking about. There's no like, well, is it Giannis Johnson or Giannis? Like, I think it might be Giannis Jenkins who yeah. owes me twelve bucks from like fourth grade. Yeah, there's one Giannis, and that's the that's the beauty of this game is that. Is that is that is that you can is that there's that familiarity, and the other thing too is this: if you like basketball, is still going to be a team game. You're still going to have ten players on the court. You're still you're still going to have the ball move around. But again, so if you're if you're an old school basketball fan, or if you're a I'm sorry, a traditional basketball fan, there's there's still that stuff for you. But if you're a kid, if you're 10, 11, 12 years old. Like those names are are, are what's going to get you in, or, or, or is, is what's going to excite you. Not the fact that oh well, Kyrie Irving used that used that screen really well, and then you know he was able to pull for a fifteen foot jumper. That that is the 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 the, the strategist will like that. But for the kid, for the for the casual fan, for the for the person who's maybe just watching an NBA Finals game for the first time, they're going to know the stars, and that and that's served the NBA well for decades now. Yep. And I'll use that segue to kind of talk about one of the first things that I found really interesting about your book. But mm -hmm. even prior to your book, you wrote this beautiful article in 2013. And correct mm -hmm. me if I get the date wrong around the all star anthem mm -hmm. and specifically yes. a big star, probably in his prime Marvin Gaye singing what I think some people consider to be the finest rendition of the national anthem. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, reading that article again in anticipation of this interview, it truly showcased how pivotal that moment was because mm -hmm. that is that intersection of popular culture and basketball melding is one, almost mm -hmm. collaborating in an alley-oop sense because he <laughs> threw the ball so high with that beautiful rendition and it was just the easy part for the NBA to say, okay, now all we have to do is put something out there that's viewable and that's competitive. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that because it is one of those pivotal moments in basketball mythology. 
Mm-hmm. No, you're, you're, you said it perfectly. I really do believe that that anthem is, is the border or the borderline between the old NBA and the new NBA, the NBA that we, the NBA that we know now, because that made it very clear that the NBA was going to be about giving you a good time. It was going to be about, it was going to be about entertaining. It was going to be about reflecting who was on the act, who was on the court and who was, who was going to watch this game. It was going to cater to a young, it was going to cater to a younger audience. So that anthem was absolutely pivotal in, in charting the course for the new NBA, the NBA that we see now. And the, the funny part about it is that it really wasn't planned. You know, the NBA, you know, the NBA, you know, the Lakers, the Lakers wanted to Lionel Richie. Um, and Lon Rosen, who's, who's the director of promotions for the Lakers called the NBA office and uh, said, you know, and, and, you know, uh, told the NBA, Oh yeah, you know, we're, we're going to get Lionel Richie. And Lionel Richie at the time was a big star. And the person who answered the phone at the NBA said, who's, who's Lionel Richie? Who's that? So with that out of the way, the NBA, the Lakers went with Marvin Gaye, who was not only a, a Motown legend, but he was, but he was somebody who was back in the uh, limelight because of sexual healing, um, which was a big hit in uh, in '83 around the time of the anthem. So, yeah. So and and the and also the Lakers, um, you know, the Lakers, the NBA didn't really have any idea of what he was going to, of what Marvin Gaye was going to do. They, you know, he, he had, he had this, he, he, um, he did a run through during the, during the all-star game practice the day before, which nearly went off the rails because the, the rendition was way too long. And Lon Rosen, who was there, was like, Hey, you got to shorten this up. And was trying, and he tried to talk to Marvin Gaye about that. And Marvin kept turning away from him, like going around and literally going around in circles to avoid talking to Lon Rosen. So there was a lot of doubt as to if this is going, if how this is going to happen. And then, you know, Marvin Gaye takes his sweet ass time getting to the forum, shows up five minutes before the anthem. So there was no, so there was a lot of question marks about uh, marks about this. And there was, so, so yeah, when it happened, there were a lot of naysayers, but, if you look at the naysayers, they were it was people that were older, white, middle aged. Like if you look at the if, if the funny thing to do is to go on newspapers.com and look at the reaction from the sports columnists yep. from back in the day, and inevitably yep. it's all guys that like like look like me or or look like my dad, and they're just like, oh, this was terrible. This was, but it was, but it was, it, but. But it was the sign of something new, and it was exciting, and it got people talking in a good way, and that's mm-hmm. what the NBA needed. And the NBA rode that energy, and just took it to the next level. And it also, of course, helped immensely that hip hop was starting to gain was starting to gain traction, and you know, you have you know, rap is becoming you know this this mu- this new music- musical genre that's emerging. So it was a perfect storm, and the NBA had the common sense to be like, you know what, we're gonna ride this, like. This is exactly what we want. We want we want to cater to a hipper audience, a younger audience, and we want we want this to be fun. You know, it, this wasn't like baseball. This wasn't like football. It was something completely different. And here we are, you know, for thirty eight years later, and this is yeah. the, the, nothing has really changed. It's amazing. Yeah. Not at all. And. Yeah. To your point, this is a young person's league. It's mm-hmm. evident in the promotion. It's evident yep. in the marketing. It's evident in how they brand stars. And it was also interesting to me, kind of going back through the article, One, two passages that you wrote okay. really stuck out with me. One mm-hmm. was the quote that Pat Riley had where he goes, mm-hmm. when Marvin Gaye took off, I morphed into an American. Mm-hmm. And that to me is saying something because Pat Riley is the Don. He's the godfather. Yep. He yep. never met a corporate pitch that he hasn't disliked. <laughs> And for him to say, I felt so strongly to convert to the ties of patriotism because of how awesome, how much of a heat check that national anthem Mm -hmm. was, was really probably the lasting legacy. And then the last passage where you're talking, I think it's Rosen kind of taking it all in. Then he sees somebody who's just nodding along with everything and is buying in. And then you have that perfect last sentence of, and then David Stern became commissioner. Yeah. And that, once again, shameless plug, is this. The origin story, in a sense, for David Stern, who... As you and I were chatting prior Mm -hmm. to recording, I had kind of made this comment that he's probably the greatest New York point guard that we never knew about in the sense that, yes, he played. And I think he had a knee injury in one of his games, which forced him to retire. Mm -hmm. And that's when, like, I think his passion took over even more because he couldn't physically play on that passion. Yeah. But 
it's one of those things where as you're reading this book, you are looking at the fact that David Stern was always able to read the room a little bit better than everybody else. He was always able to kind of figure out how the ebbs and flows of the waves are going to go for mm -hmm, his league. Mm -hmm. And he knew what to prioritize. So talk to me a little bit about Stern as this visionary, because I don't want to give everything away because we right. want people to buy the book. But give me almost like an amuse-bouche, if you will, of oh, okay. David Stern's brilliance. Oh, how amusing. Um, yeah, no, I, no. Very well, very well put. Um, David Stern and me, look, I think the key to David Stern's ability as a mark, as a marketer and somebody who was able to put the league in the best light and who knew what the league, what the league could be was that he was just a giant NBA fan. I mean, he grew up going to Knicks games with his dad. I mean, he would, you know, he would, he would be able to get in with like, you know, a student ID card um, and like a 25 sent tip to the usher to get the good seats at Madison Square Garden, you know, back, back in the, back in the fifties. So that's the thing. He loved the NBA. He loved it. He loved basketball. And he also saw what the league could be. He had passion. And the thing with David Stern is that he, he knew it was, he, he understood, and this is an overused word, but I'm going to use it. But I think David Stern used, understood optics better than any major NBA commissioner in, 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 in modern day history. He knew the value of television. He understood that to go to piggyback on the point we made earlier, he understood the value of stars. He understood that, look, if you have two shitty teams that are playing, okay, well, you know what? Like maybe the San Diego Clippers don't have anyone playing, but if they're playing uh, the Los Angeles Lakers, like focus on magic Johnson, focus on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, like, he understood that he understood that there was an entertainment side to the league that had to be, for lack of a better term, exploited and had to be um, um, uh, amplified. And he and, and that's and I think that's one reason with 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 Marvin's Gaines Anthem, the fact that I put that in there is because that was that set the tone for everything after, because he absolutely understood that th that to get to get people interested in the league. It, it had to be presented in the best possible light. And that meant the best possible light on television, but it also meant turning it into entertainment. And there's, there's a, there's a scene later in the book where he was, he's talking to a bunch of owners about um, the pals at Auburn Hills. And he, you know, he's going on about, he's talking to these, to these executives, these GMs and owners and saying like, look, you know, we're, we're not, we're, we're, we're in the entertainment business. We're in, you know, we're in, we're not, we're, we're in, we're not, we're not in the basketball business. This is entertainment. So under David Stern, everything was pretty much like Disney. You know, the, 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 um, the arenas were amusement parks. If you're going to entertain, if you're going to an NBA game, you're going to be entertained. You weren't just going to go and sit and watch, watch, sit and watch a basketball game. So when I see, when, so when you bring back that moment with David Stern, I think that encapsulates his philosophy perfectly because he was, right. he was somebody who saw the NBA as more than just a sports league it, and to survive. It couldn't, it couldn't be just a sports league. Yep. No, I mean, I think that is probably as great of a summation as we can get given our short time. But one thing I know right now I'm mm -hmm. captivated in a sense because one of my go-to binge shows on Netflix is drive to survive. Okay. The Formula One show. Oh, and to okay. me, it's almost, lack of a better term, a victory lap of David Stern's mm -hmm. policies. Because yes. this is something that is foreign to us from an American perspective. It's recently made some headway, and now we're slowly falling in love with the sport because of the fact that it's a lot of the NBA's playbook of, here are our drivers. Mm -hmm. And granted, we're not going to be able to see the drivers when they're actually in their actual competition because of the helmets, mm -hmm. but we are going to bombard you with their faces when they're not on the track. We're going to give right. you everything you need to know about their personality. And it's something as I'm watching this show, I'm like, David Stern kind of godfathered this. So at very minimum, we should get that executive produced by David Stern because <laughs> he kind of outlined that blueprint in a sense. But the other thing I think will be David Stern's legacy is this. Mm -hmm. Prior to Stern kind of coming to the forefront, we had Magic and Bird. And yeah. I think David Stern became the commissioner of the NBA in February of 1984. And I believe mm -hmm. Jordan got drafted a couple months later. Yeah. So mm -hmm. to me, those two are almost the 
picking up of the torch, if you will, from Magic and Larry, because yes. Magic and Larry competed, but then they also realized the benefit of us is also working together in terms of ushering this league in. And I think while Jordan and Stern didn't have as many quote unquote conflicts, I think the only thing I could think of is the band shoe ad, which mm -hmm. there's a really funny line as you were talking about in your book about Stern is meeting with somebody from Nike mm -hmm. and the thing Stern tells that kid is great. My kid thinks I'm an asshole because I won't <laughs> let him wear the sneaker. So it's fa fantastic to me because rightfully so we give a Jordan a lot of credit for kind of picking mm -hmm. up the baton from magic and Larry and ushering in this new era. But then at the same time, I think he can't have done it alone because David Stern had to be his Phil Jackson in a sense before the actual Phil Jackson got there. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. So. There had, there had, there had, David Stern provided the stage for the entertainers to perform. I think it's probably the, be the best way to put it. I mean, and he, mm -hmm. you know, because look, Larry Magic, we're going to, we're going to get people, were great players. So was Michael Jordan, but yep. they, but they needed, they needed a stage and they needed people to come see them. Like, I don't know, there, there are plenty of entertainers in this world who are brilliant, plenty of authors, plenty of singers, painters, but they don't have an audience. They don't, there's no one that's com that's coming to see them. And David Stern got asses into the seats and he got yep. it by, by, by present, by getting the best out of television coverage. He did it by, by making the merchandise personality driven and flashy and versatile. He did it by, um, you know, he, he did it by not digging in his heels with stuff like Nike. I mean, you know what, if the shoe's going to sell and it's going to elevate his game, great. You know what, who cares if it's, if the colors are, are, are quote unquote, um, against regulation. That, that's the thing. I think, that, you know, David Stern is really the, you know, if you look at, if you look at the, if you compare the NBA to a Hollywood system, like David Stern is like Louis B. Mayer and yep. you know um, Jack Warner, like geez, these, like these mogul, like these studio moguls, and you know Larry Bird is maybe Clark Gable, and and Magic mm -hmm. Johnson is you know is um, Fred Astaire, Ga Fred Astaire, Gary Cooper, like that's that that you know that's that's the beauty of of to me to me that's the beauty of the NBA is that you know or or what the, I'm sorry of David Stern's ability is that he got he got people to care. He got, he not only, not only, I mean, he got, I mean, that's the one thing about this book that I thought was interesting in terms of researching is that David Stern not only got like you and me to care and a millions of other people to care about the NBA and, and buy the gear and the videos yep. and the, everything, but he got everyone working for him just about to care. And that's the thing. Like he was just, he was a, he was really in a lot of ways, he was almost like a preacher just yep. kind of like spreading the gospel of the NBA. And, you know, he, he did it. I mean, if you look, if you look at, at the NBA's place in the world, I, I think it's very clear that his mission um, was, was a rousing success. Absolutely. And it's something you said in your book as well is when he died in January 1st of 2020, which holy crap, that's one of those dads mm -hmm. that we forget about how which yeah. was a precursor to how shitty our year was going to be. <laughs> you mentioned the fact that a lot of people lost their NBA dad, so to speak, yeah. because of that loyalty he inspired from everybody. Like mm -hmm. he was at times a very flawed individual. He may have been a bit too stubborn for his own liking, but the one thing I can always say about David Stern is he always had the affection and he always had the hearts and minds of those that truly backed him. Yes. And in their mind, he could do no wrong. Yes. The, the, someone, uh, one of the stores I spoke to said this perfectly about David Stern. He said that, and this is someone who worked, who worked for the NBA for years. Uh, he said that David Stern was the best boss and the worst boss I ever had. And yeah, he was, he was, he was a, he had a relentless work ethic. He was, he was never satisfied. He was blunt to the point of being offensive. I think if you put him in today's work, work environment, he would be in HR half the week, but, yes. he, but he was somebody who, if it, it, he, he was somebody who got everyone to care and he was because he cared more than everybody he was not one of those bosses who was in by nine out by five didn't give a shit only cared about the only cared about the about the uh about the bonus that he got each year he was deeply invested in this and he was also deeply invested in his employees like if you worked hard for him and you were and you were up to the, up to the task of making the nba great david Stern was the best ally you 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 could ever have and he was somebody who you know, who was just, who was, 
yes, he had this prickly demeanor and he was absolutely one of those guys that you did not want to fuck with because he would either eviscerate you like in a meeting or he would, he would take you like to his office and dress you down. But he was also somebody that cared deeply about his employees. I mean, I think the NBA to him was really a second family. And, you know, in talking to people for this book, you know, there are people who said like, yeah, you know, David, if I feel like I can call David, David Stern now and he could help me out. Or if I was in the gym, like I would, he would be the first person I called. It was, a, it was a weird kind of loyalty and not everybody got that loyalty. I, I mean, I'm yeah. not, I don't want, I'm not David Stern's publicist, but what was striking to me was just how many people. David Stern touched and yeah. you know, it's, it's, and you're right. You know, when he, when he died, it's, it's kind of fit. No death is ever really fitting, but I think what's, what's so weird about his death is that he died. And then about two weeks later, Kobe Bryant dies in that horrible helicopter accident. Mm-hmm. And those two deaths to me, I think kind of symbolize what the NBA had become because David Stern's death, I mean, it was, he was mourned, of course, but Kobe Bryant passed away and he was, and he, his mourning was, it's, he, it's still being felt. And I think that just goes to show you how, what the job that David Stern did in turning these, in turning players into these nation, well, I'm, I'm not even nationwide, worldwide symbols yep you know i mean that's the thing and and look and kobe bryant was not exactly a warm and cuddly dude who was you know um you know who was gonna you know who who was you know kissing babies and and shaking hands but he's some but i think the m but david stern's nba branding machine is really was really shown you really saw the for the force of it in january 2020 because he passes away and yeah, they're the they're the testimonials and the people that are, and the mourning. But when Kobe Bryant dies, it it becomes it was something else entirely. And that impact is a direct result of I think of David Stern's infrastructure and how he allowed new stars to come. To, I'm sorry, new stars to arrive and new stars to fall, and the cycle keeps repeating itself. So it, it's, it's, yeah, 2020 was a bet was a bad year, but it's, it's funny. Those two, those two deaths really started us off and then it was just, everything just got worse after that. It's all downhill from there. Absolutely. Now I'll hopefully use this to transition into something a little bit sunnier. We are the Sneaker <laughs> history podcast. So yes. I can't think of something more radiant and more incandescent with joy than one Walt Clyde Frazier. <laughs> and for a lot of people, our image of him now is the gentleman that uses the $5 words when a $1 word would suffice. And we love him for it. And yes, he's also do. got that touch of gray money. Yes. But talk to us about Walt Frazier as the sneaker salesman. Right. Um, no, I, I love, I love Walt. And that was, and it's funny, even in the interview, he was the same way. I mean, the guy yeah. is just, the guy's a bullient. And you know, it, it's, it's, that's the, one of the fun things about, about this book was like, yeah, I'm, the Walt Frazier I'm talking to is pretty much the one that's, you know, trading bars with, uh, with Mike Bream. Now, Walt Frazier is, is a, I think a, a, an overlooked, um, figure in, in, in basketball sneaker history, uh, because the, he was, he was really the first NBA player to have his own major shoe deal. And, and the thing about, and what's, what's cool, what's great about Walt is that those, those Clyde Pumas, and I have a, a reissue pair up oh, in my awesome. bedroom, um, they, I, I didn't do well in the color scheme. It's yellow on turquoise. So they are, okay. they're not great. And, but, but anyway, I'll, I'll make up for that. Oh, no, 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 no. I feel like there's nothing more indicative of Walt Frazier. Than yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not Walt Frazier, so I don't pull them off. Um, You're good. You're good. <laughs> but anyway, but what, but what was great about those shoes is that, I mean, they were, they, they had such crossover appeal because not only were they being worn on the court, but they, but they were fashion statements. And as time went on, you know, the hip hop community was, was wearing them. You know, they were being worn by, you know, by the B boys and the break dancers and 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 you know, this sort of you know new um, non basketball clientele. And so, like the the shoes kind of had a rebirth. They they went from be, being something that was not just something you would wear in a basketball court. It wasn't just a Chuck Taylor All Star. And another another shoe that 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 was like that that had this crossover appeal and is still sort of, I think, revered by sneakerheads are, are the Jabars, you know, because, yeah. because the, the Jabars, you know, were, 
uh, I think Bobito Garcia in his great book on um, where'd you get those yes. cites the Jabars as being sort of the first the first Adidas shoe that was loved by the hip hop community. So like that was, you know, so that was another, another example of a shoe having like this tremendous crossover appeal. And, you know, we all talk about the Air Jordans as we rightfully should. They're, you know, they were game changers and they became, you know, high fashion. But I think, you know, but, but to me, the Clydes and to a lesser extent, the Jab the, the Jabars really set the stage for the, for the, the basketball sneaker as, you know, as, as a fashion piece, as, you know, as, as fashion footwear. Um, and then by the time, you know, and then when the Jordans hit, and, you know, in, in, in 84, uh, 84, 85, like it's, it's all over. Like it's just, it's a completely different ballgame after that. Yeah. And that's something I kind of wanted you to briefly touch on because before we got to Jordan, mm -hmm. Nike kind of had this strategy, so to speak of, okay, this is how we're going to break into the basketball mm -hmm. market. And like I said, please correct me if I'm wrong. The initial mentality was let's go after the coaches because they were kind of the gatekeepers of what yeah. each team wore. Mm -hmm. It was it was with colleges. It was the co it was the coaches definitely. It was okay. it, it, and then, but really, my, Nike was the Nike really went all went all out on the NBA. What they you know they were trying to compete with Converse. Okay. Um, so what the what Nike did was they had something that was called the Pro Club, which was yes. they would just target they would just get certain they would sign up certain individual certain players of teams and kind of put them in this elite group so it was like folks like moses malone and george gervin and and phil chenier and paul westfall like all these these great to you know legendary players who are part of this elite group you know and and part of that group was that like not only did you get shoes but you got perks like you got you got taken away to a nice fancy resort you got really you got you know you would get real you'd get you get paid to wear the shoes, like not just a flat rate, but also a percentage of the shoes that were sold. So what, so Nike not only did that, but they started going after everybody because um, as, as someone told me, I think it was, um, uh, who was it? As a Nike executive told me like, you know, they got the bench players too, because yep. when you're watching TV, like guess what you're seeing on, 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 on the TV, the bench players, they're wearing the swoosh. So Nike did this for a number of years, and then it just became inordinately expensive because you were paying 50, 60, 40, 50 players who are in this pro club, which is getting bigger by the year, mm -hmm. a giant sum of money. Um, some of these players are getting more money because they're bigger. You're also giving you know all these scrubs a nice paycheck every year for wearing their shoes. It just became completely expensive. So in 84, Nike decided to go smaller, not bigger. So they wanted to focus on a number of players instead of everybody. And so what they did was, you know, they, they, they winnowed it down to a few, a few select players. Um, and then they, you know, then they went after Jordan, they went after uh, the hot new rookie and it just, you know, it was one of those things that just were, were everything aligned. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you, you we talked about this earlier, like, it's sort of a chicken the egg thing, you know, yep. with, with Jordan. But I mean, I really do think though that Jordan being as spectacular as he was makes the shoe. You yep. know, if Jordan is Sidney Moncrief or Clyde David Drexler, Thompson. David Thompson, it's not the same. You know, you, you he was a Jordan was a transcendent player, and not only that, but he was somebody who was, you know, David Halberson makes this remark in his book. That he was a good-looking dude. He was he yes. was he was classic. He was quote unquote beautiful, and that's the thing. He had like he was, he was six foot six, a good size. He was he again. He had the fine features. He had that. He had the terrific skin. He was a beautiful guy. So yep. having that, having those aesthetics in place, having the shoe, having the game to go with all of that, it all lined up perfectly. And the reason why I think shoes didn't really take off as much as they did was, you know, you didn't have the marketing, um, the marketing uh, abilities, the marketing um, mindset that Nike had, but the players weren't like Jordan. You know, Clyde, Fra Clyde Frazier was a, was, a, was a great player and he was certainly a fashion plate, but he was, you know, he was, he was, he was more of a, he wasn't, he didn't have Jordan's game. He was a defensive guy. He was a point guard. He was team right. first. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You know, he's seven foot one, seven foot two. It's hard to imagine yourself as a big dude, you know, you know, shooting a hook shot from nine feet high. So, you know, Michael comes along and it's just this perfect, 
it, it was just perfect because he's also marketed as an individual too. That's the key. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you know, Larry and Magic. Yeah, they had the weapons, but they're always they always they were they were always Larry and Magic. And yep. Doctor J had issue, but it wasn't a Doctor J issue. It was the, it was the conference all star. So you didn't really get a chance. You, you didn't really get that feeling that it was his shoe. This this was unequivocally Jordan's shoe. It was right. his shoe. He wasn't part of a, of a, of a consortium of, of other players. It was his shoe and his shoe alone. And the fact that the shoe looked the way that it looked, the fact that he was that he that Jordan looked the way that he looked, that he played the way that he played. It was a perfect storm, and I'm not sure you're ever going to see. And I mean, you never want to say never, but I cannot imagine things like that happening again. It's just, it's too. It's it's really it's one of those magical moments. Absolutely, and I think that's one of those things when inevitably you listen to any sort of sports media nowadays, especially if it's basketball centric you're going to have that moment where you're just going to grit your teeth and go through the, okay, LeBron or Jordan thing. And I think one disadvantage LeBron has that Jordan never faced was the fact that Jordan never had a template to follow. Yes. Like LeBron has had to. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to your point, we saw semblances of a template because we kind of knew what to expect from a Dr. J. Yeah. We knew the competitiveness of a magic Larry rivalry. Mm-hmm. But it was never something that Jordan had to hit on every single marker the same way LeBron does. And I think that's where Jordan ultimately will always kind of have that moral upper hand in a sense because Mm -hmm. of the fact that no matter how great LeBron is, and I think LeBron is fantastic, he will always have to chase that ghost. Hell, they made a chasing ghost colorway for one of LeBron's sneakers. Yeah. even he's acknowledging that, but yeah. that's where I think the Jordan argument will cause him to win unless until LeBron gets six titles and then you start having the nuances of the conversation, yeah. but that'll be for another podcast for another day. No, the, the key, say, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no please. Yeah. The, the, the key too with, with, and this is in the book too. The key with Jordan is that, uh, is that Jordan was a clean slate. Yes. You know, there were, Jordan never really said anything political. He wasn't advocating for social change. He was. He came along at the right time in the eighties, which is all about you know. It's the ripple, Alex B. Keaton era. Yeah, in a sense. It, it was. Before, it was ripple free imagery, and yep. with LeBron James, one reason why I love LeBron James is that he is such an advocate. Is that he is someone who 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 identifies himself as not just you know not just a basketball player, but as a black man in America, and that's a, and so and he's someone who who sees himself as that, and is and addresses those concerns and michael jordan never did that michael jordan was was really apolitical and he was somebody who didn't have that agenda and i think that's another thing too is that michael jordan had was all about basketball and with yes. with, with lebron james yes he's a wonderful basketball player and he's a top 10 all-time talent i you know i'm not gonna so anyone who's listening i'm not you know i'm team lebron as a as a, as a ball player yep. but you we're we're seeing we we are but i think with with lebron we know who he is as a person. We know what he cares about. We know we know what what angers him, what drives him beyond the basketball court. Michael Jordan never gave us that problem. So you could you could you could assign anything you wanted to Michael Jordan, and you know you could be you know you you could be I I, I think of you know the typical you know fifty year old male with like you know a beer in his hand on an easy chair, you know yeah. that guy could say like you know that Michael Jordan's a hell of a basketball player. I don't think that you're not going to see that with LeBron James. <laughs> yes. That, so. in, in a sense, he, Michael Jordan is greatest common denominator. Good. in the fact that you're like, yeah. okay, he's just good. We don't want to talk about it, mm-hmm. but there is that kind of nagging feeling. And you allude to it in your book because mm-hmm. you cite a GQ interview that Jordan had given yeah. where he felt like he had to be on the straight and narrow always yeah. because his nightmare was, I, I think, robbing a bank, doing mm-hmm. a line of cocaine. And mm-hmm. he was just worried that would cause his empire to fall. And in a sense, that's probably his chief motivation at the time of that interview is like, I cannot fuck up the bag, so to speak. Yeah, no, I mean, and and, and that's the thing too. Look, I mean, now, back in the 1980s, back in the 1980s and the 1990s, you know, being being an outspoken athlete was really something that that had fallen out of favor, and it was also something it was also something that would end, that could end a career. So that's a legitimate. So so yeah, I mean, people people blast Michael Jordan for being like, well, he wasn't political enough, or he wasn't this. But it's like, well, 
he had a lot to lose. And it's not it's not like now where if you if, if you are outspoken there, you know, I, I never want to say there's a, there's not a consequence, but the consequences aren't nearly as grave as they would have been in 1988 or 1989 or 1990. I mean, you know, he very well could have been one of those p players where, you know, he was he, he could have been just out of the league because like, well, this is too hot for us to handle. And, yep. you know, he had and that's the thing, you know, at that time and you, you alluded to this earlier, this is all new. So there was no, you know, Dr. J never had the, had this kind of celebrity, had this kind of fandom. This is all new. This is all new. And for us, for, for us to play Monday morning, Monday morning quarterback 30 years later, like, well, I would have done this or I would have said that. You don't know. Like, no, there was, it was all, it was all new and it was all coming at him. And the fact that he handled it as a businessman and as somebody like who handled it, who handled, who handled it in a way as to what could project the best image, that's a pretty shrewd pl play for someone in their twenties. I mean, yep. cause he could have, he could have let that all go to his head and fuck shit up. But like he, he kept it on the straight and narrow and you know what? It, it, it it's, it worked. I mean, he came, he came out of it. I think as he came out of it pretty, pretty okay. Yep. Yes, he did. <laughs> no, and I was going to say this. So we touched on sneakers, which mm -hmm. was kind of at its pomp and circumstance in the 80s. Yeah. Before we go, I would love to get your thoughts because once mm -hmm. again, you wrote this great book. Thank from you. From Hang Time to Prime Time. Uh, yeah, that's the shameless Mick Foley fan in me that I'm just going to give you a shameless plug <laughs> every five that. minutes if I can. Talk to me about how you think David Stern would view something like NBA Twitter or and or NBA Top Shot because I think – once again, going into your theme of the NBA always does always does new better than any other league. Mm -hmm. I think those are the two things that have almost become extensions of his legacy because now yeah. the NBA is probably as much of a second screen experience as any sport because of the personalities that don't even have any sort of professional affiliation with the game. Mm -hmm. It's bloggers, it's funny people online that seem to care more about this sport than any other. Yeah. And then also yeah. this Top Shot thing, which you and I touched on briefly yeah. in our pre-recording meeting and how it's kind of become the evolutionary trading card. I, you know, I honestly, here's the thing. As time went on, I talked to people about this for the book. You know, David Stern hardened a little bit. You know, he wasn't as he wasn't as prescient as he was back in the eighties. And, and, and that, I think that's just a byproduct of getting older. Um, you know, you do something, you do something for 30 years. Yep. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna go with the familiar. You're, you're not, you're gonna you think, get fixed. Yeah. But I do think that David Stern, if he had surrounded himself by the, with the right people, and he always did that, I think he would have come around to both of those things. I think he would have seen Twitter and he would have seen top shot as just again like he he would have recognized them as like okay well you know what nba twitter that's now what the newspaper journalists were in the 1980s and then and then we have to so we have to like treat them as you know we have to kind of give them what they want we have to work with them you know we and he, he would he would embrace that and top shot's the same thing i mean the nba was was almost was almost revolutionary how I treated basketball and how I treated sporting cards. You know, uh, mm -hmm. going back, you know, I'm dating myself here, but when Skybox came out, they were the first cards with computer graphics on them. That was a huge deal. It, it had a lot of buzz. They also did they also did the cards internally, so the money went all to them. It wasn't like handled by tops or you know, it was it came right to them. I mean, they embrace they they understood the cards could be marketing and could be used to you know, keep to make them money. So I honestly think David Stern would have seen these, would have seen these two things and maybe he would have been like, well, that's kind of weird or that's odd. Cause I, you know, I'm in my seventies now and this is, I don't get what these kids are doing, but I right. honestly think he would have noticed like, oh yeah, this is, this is what, this is just a spin on the journalists of the 1970s and, you know, working with them and Top Shot basically is what basketball cards were in the 1980s and 1990s. He he would have adapted. I mean, I think David Stern, look, you don't last 30 years in anything if you're not adaptive. If you're if if you're not listening to people who who can fill you in on things. And you know, David Stern, you know, I think David Stern would have would have come around. I mean, look, I always think about the dress code like that. He he did that and that. Did a 180 on that. 
then the new ball, like in 2004, yep. they choose that new horrible ball that scratched fingers Cut, and paper cuts. Yeah. Yep. Eventually he's like, yeah, that was a mistake. I think David Stern was somebody who, if he knew, if, if money was on the line and um, again, optics were on the line, he would have ultimately made the right call. And so I think he would have been like, you know, I don't get this, but you know what? Fuck it. Like, let's ride this out and we can, you know, we'll, 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 we'll be better for, for, for partnering with these things and embracing these things at the end of the day. And I think that's probably the best way to end this podcast because that is as apt of a life description of David Stern. So Pete, thank you again for your time. My thank pleasure. you again for this awesome book thank from you. Hang Time to Prime Time, available at all big booksellers everywhere, independent or otherwise. And Pete, any last words before we sign off? Uh, yeah, a couple of things. First of all, thanks for having me. This is great. I had a blast. Um, if, for anyone who buys the book, the, the hardcover or eventually the paper, the paperback edition, which I hope, knock on wood, there will be one. Um, let's see. I, I'm ha if you buy a copy, I'm happy to send a signed book plate. Um, awesome. Just hit me up on Twitter. Uh, you know, I'm at Pete Croato, P-E-T-E-C-R-O-A, two T's as in Thomas O, at Pete Croato. So if you, if you get the book for gift buy it at a bookstore or wherever happy to sign a book plate if you want an autographed copy those are there those are for sale as well uh, i'm signing books through odyssey bookstore which is a wonderful independent bookstore in ithaca new york cool if you go to odysseybookstore.com uh you can contact the store there and i will i'll personalize a copy for you uh and the store will ship it anywhere uh in the u.s for five dollars extra and again that's odyssey bookstore o-d-y-s-s-e-y bookstore.com and i'm happy to sign any books and the store will mail them to you excellent thank you so much for your time pete and thank you for the knowledge that you shared was that is just a hint of what you get in the book i can't recommend the book enough and look forward to hearing what comes next from you pete thanks rod i appreciate it have a good one you too Hey y'all, Nick Ingvall here. Before you take off, I want to thank you for listening to the Sneaker History Podcast. It really means a lot that you would spend a portion of your week hanging with us, and if there are any ways that we can improve the podcast for you, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you're looking for more content from the Sneaker History crew, head over to patreon.com slash sneakerhistory and join us for as little as five bucks a month. That also gets you access to our Discord group, which is a lot of fun. Also, make sure you're subscribed to our YouTube channel. We just started uploading our videos there now, so you can watch the video version of the pod and a lot more. Last but not least, tell someone you like their kicks today. It's a small gesture that can go a really long way to making somebody's day a little bit better. Thanks again, and we'll catch you on the next one. Peace. Hey, hey, Nick here again. Before you take off, I want to thank you for listening to the Sneaker History Podcast. Be sure to hop into our Discord to answer this episode's The Last Shot question and get to know our community of sneaker enthusiasts. If you'd like more insights on the trending topics in the sneaker world, I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com newsletter. And last but not least, tell someone you like their kicks today. You never know how far a simple compliment can take you, and we all know how good it feels to be on the receiving end of some appreciation. Thank you for all the support, and we will catch you on the next episode. Peace.